Well, good morning. It is so great to be with you here today in the house of the Lord. And what a great declaration to say that all praise belongs to him. And uh, we're in week two of a seven-part series called Seven Days as we lead up to Easter Sunday, as the Resurrection Sunday, the main event, the Super Bowl Sunday of the Christian faith. Can I get away, man? Come on now. And uh, it is going to be exciting. I hope you're already making plans to be here April 9th. Uh, don't come alone. We are preparing for a full house. And uh, that, I just, I'm so excited. I'm just so excited. Uh, before we jump into that, I just want to welcome those who are watching online. Thanks again for checking us out, for tuning in. And uh, wherever you find yourself, we pray that you would just experience the presence of God that we're feeling in this room, that you would know that and experience that wherever you're watching. Hey, would you do us a favor? Let us know in the chat window where you're watching from. Uh, just say hello. Don't just kind of be a spectator, but engage in community. Our, we would just love to say hello. And if you live in the concurrent area, this kind of Bruce County area, come on in and visit. We would save, we got a seat for you. Actually, this whole front row is empty. <laughs> Nobody likes this front row. I don't know what it is about this front row. Anyway, one day we'll see it filled. Maybe from you. Anyway, we'd love to invite you to come and join us. Also, if you're in the room and maybe it's your first time or first time in a long time, you've been at church, hey, welcome. We are just so happy to have you with us this morning. So we're in this series called Seven Days. And if you want to follow along with our notes, you can always go to the Version Bible app. That's always available for you. You can just search the church. You can go to the events and all of my notes are in there. You can create your own notes and save them for later if you so choose. Also, all the scripture is also there for you to read along with me, but we're in this series, seven days, and the question we're going to ask is, well, why are we focusing an entire series on just seven days of Jesus' life? What is that all about? And the real simple answer is because the Bible does. The Bible puts, puts a lot of emphasis on the last seven days of Jesus. In fact, if you were to add up the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the first four books of the New Testament. They were all written by uh, first-hand witnesses, eyewitnesses of Jesus's life, kind of talking about their perspective of Jesus's life and ministry. If you were to add up all the combined chapters of those four Gospels, you'd have 89 chapters. But 29 of those are, fact, are focused on the last seven days of his life, meaning one-third of the Gospels is focused on the last seven days of Jesus's life. Therefore, it's probably pretty important that we focus on those seven days. There's obviously a lot there that we can glean from and learn from and apply to our faith as followers of Jesus. And this, this, this week is often called, many of you know, it's called the, the Passion Week, right? This is references the Holy Week or the Passion Week. It's the week that gives us a compound perspective on Jesus's love for us. It's Christ's passion for you and I was on, was on full display. It was on full display. And our prayer, my prayer for you and for us throughout the series is not only that we would catch a greater glimpse of God's passion for us, but that in turn, something would spark in us, a passion would be burned in us and, and birthed in us in response to his great love. And our passion would grow for him and it would overflow in return. We, we, we read verses like John 3.16 that says, For God so loved, so loved the world, so loved you and I that he gave we read Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love for you in this, that he sent his one and only son. And I believe the type of passion that God has revealed to us demands a passionate response in return. I, are you hearing me this morning? I demand, we don't have to get to bed last week, do we? Come on, I don't, I'm too tired for that. I lost a little bit of sleep last night. I know we're all here. I'm so grateful you're here. Set your alarms, ready to go. 
But listen, there should be a passionate response. And passionate doesn't mean like hoorah, right? But there's a, a full heart investment. We are committed fully, intentionally, and living out for him. I love how Isaac Watts, I believe he said it best, the writer of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, he writes, love so amazing, so divine, it demands, it demands my heart, my soul, my all, my soul, my life, my all. And I believe that Christ's passion for us demands a passionate response where we, it, it demands my whole life, my all, everything that I have. And so if you want to catch up and you missed last week, you can go online and watch that. But last week we focused on day one, on the Sunday of the week prior, you know, prior to the Resurrection Sunday, one week prior, triumphal entry, Palm Sunday is kind of what it, we traditionally call it, where the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he's riding on a donkey, and we witness the people's kind of fickle or situational faith, right? That they, they worship Jesus for the miracles they had seen, but they weren't really worshiping Jesus for who he was or who he is. So when the tide turned and when the emotionalism left, they were not just, they weren't praising Hosanna anymore, but they were shouting, crucify him, right? Sit five days later. And so we talked about this. What does this look like? And we realized that real worship or true worship is a response to what we value most. What we value most. We talked about what that looked like a little bit. Today we're going to focus in on day two. We're going to look at the, the Monday of the Passion Week and what happened as Jesus went into the temple in Jerusalem. And as this final week in, uh, continued, he establishes uh, the, 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 the issue with the, with the established religious order escalated, right? Tension began to build. The water began to boil, so to speak, right? There was always tension between Jesus and the religious leaders or Jesus and, and the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but it was starting to bubble over. It was starting to get hot, Things were heating up more the following day as Jesus walked into the Father's house, the temple, and he saw to those, he saw and he, and he referred to those as robbers taking advantage of God's people. There was this, this crazy moment. But before we get to Monday, I think it's important that we, we finish what actually happened on Sunday. So Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he's riding on a donkey, everyone's waving palm branches, it's this big event, you can imagine the emotions that, I mean, I went home tired last week, I can only imagine how Jesus would have felt on that day, you know, the human side of him must have been exhausted as all these people and all the hype and pomp and circumstances and people crowding around him and crying for him and touching at him, and I can just imagine how emotionally spent he was knowing full well what he was walking towards right? Like he knew what was, like I think he was emotionally spent. But it says in math, it says in Mark's, Mark's gospel, chapter 11, verse 11, it says that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, so the same day, he's walking in Jerusalem, what did he do? He went to the temple. And I love this. He looked around at everything. He looked around at everything. He saw, he went right to the temple, looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went back to Bethany with the 12, meaning he, he did this triumphal entry, he fulfilled the prophecy, he went to the temple on the Sunday, but the day was now long, I can only imagine how long of a day that a ride that was, so he, he went there, he saw the temple, because it was too late, he went back to Bethany, and he was going to pick on this up tomorrow, and, I, and Mark's gospel provides this insight that Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel kind of omit, and Mark thought it was important for us to know that Jesus, the night before the confrontation, that he went to the temple and he looked around at everything. I find this interesting. 
And he, he looked around. He, the text doesn't give us clarity on whether he simply glanced, you know, just kind of peeked in and looked around, or if he, whether he did a full-out evaluation, you know, whether he investigated kind of everything that was going on. But it does provide us evidence that Jesus' encounter with the money changers wasn't an explosive emotional response out of anger. It, 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 was, it was, but he had time to prayerfully ponder his response to the current state of affairs. Now, why is this important? Well, I believe this, is, this little note, this little insight is important because many times we often interpret this moment as Jesus sinning. We, we interpret this moment that he lost control of his anger. He, he, he burst out in anger, and we often, as the way we often do, you know, after a long day, Maybe you're like this, you know, you've worked, it's been a long day, you're tired, and you're coming home, and all of a sudden you're encountered to a situation or to someone who just rubs you the wrong way, and what happens? You have this emotional response, right, this burst out of anger, and we do that, every one of us in this room, we do that, right? None of us are admit of that, of that reality, we all do that. And so we can assume that this is what Jesus did too. We can assume that, hey, it was a long day, he was emotionally exhausted, and he got to the temple and he saw this stuff and he just burst out, burst out in anger. And that is not what happened. You see, this isn't what happened. Jesus was sinless. And there's scripture after scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he was sinless. And so this moment before the moment, this, this, this look around before the moment, created an opportunity for, for Jesus to pause and reflect and it helps us see a clear picture of Jesus' passion for people and how they were so far separated and how they separated so far from who God, from the presence of God. They've separated themselves from the presence of God. And so he goes back to Bethany that night and you can imagine he's just sitting in that moment. He's just processing all that has happened and all that is going to happen. And the next day he said, we pick up the story in verse 15 in Mark's gospel. And it says, on reaching Jerusalem, so now he's back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were now, I want you, it's interesting to look at this, who were buying and selling. If you've got your Bible in front of you, it's good to underline both words. Those who are buying and selling, sometimes we think it's all about the sellers, but he's talking to the buyers too. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone who had bought, who had, who had bought the merchandise, to carry that merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it, is it, it is, not, is it sorry, not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, you don't have to be so familiar with the story of Jesus to kind of have a, an understanding of this moment. You, this is kind of a popular moment in the story, the history of Jesus. If you went to Sunday school, you probably saw something like this on a felt board. You know, you see money everywhere. You see tables over, over, overturned. It just got this image of Jesus. But this moment isn't about Jesus getting mad at people selling product in the lobby of the church. You know, it's not about them selling merch at their church. You know, it's, there's something much deeper and even dangerous actually going on here. And Jesus points people back. I love, this is what Jesus does. He's so good. He never, he, he, sometimes he talks forward about the kingdom of heaven, but at the time he points them back to what they know, what they should know, the law, right? Jesus didn't come to, uh, to eliminate the law. He came to fulfill the law, right? 
And so he points them back to things that they already know, things that they've already heard, the, the, the principles of God that have already been established. And he, and he points them to something that they already know, especially the priests, especially the prophets and the Sadducees who are in that room. And there's two things in this moment that I believe God wants us to pick up to today. And so if you're taking notes, here's the first one. I believe that in this moment, this Passion Week, Jesus demonstrates a passion for justice. Jesus is demonstrating a passion for justice. He was righteously angry, right? He was righteously angry, meaning he was, he was angry for the right reasons, that the money changers and the merchants, to those selling. So we're talking about those who are selling right now. He was righteously angry at those who were selling. Why? Because they were taking advantage of this sacrificial system that was put in place to reconnect people back to the heart of God, to bring people into the heart of God. And it was making it impossible for people to come and connect with God. That people were actually taking advantage of this thing that actually had to happen. Money changers were extorting. Come on, they were extorting the people, knowing that if they wanted to encounter God or be forgiven of their sins, they had to buy these certain things in order to sacrifice those things at the temple. Now, you couldn't just show up with any coins you had in your pocket. You had to transfer those coins to temple coins in order to buy the temple sacrifices. And so these money changers or these money launderers were raising the inflation rate on the exchange. It wasn't coin for coin or dollar for dollar. They were, ex they were exhorting. They were, they were exasperating people. They were extorting people for the process, for their own benefit. They were abusing the system. They were using it to their benefit. And ultimately, they were hurting people. You know, I, I've, I've thought about this a lot. Like, when, you know, God says all sin is created equal. Why? Because all sin hurts people. It doesn't matter what type of sin you do. Every sin in our life hurts somebody else. And when you hurt somebody else, when you hurt somebody that Jesus loves, you hurt Jesus. And so that's what they were doing. They were hurting, they were hurting people. They were, they were abusing people. Some people even couldn't even afford to even do it because they were abusing. It was too, they were high, the bar was too high. The ones that Jesus came into the world to rescue, to redeem, and to restore, they were abusing. And I love, he quotes this moment. He says, when he talks about my house of prayer being for all nations, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He's actually quoting himself who spoke through the prophet Isaiah. Interesting. You know, the prophet didn't come up with these words on his own. He's actually speaking the word of God, Right? So Jesus is really re-emphasizing what he spoke already through the prophet Isaiah. So he's going to say this again. We see it in Isaiah 56. He says this. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds fast, and here it is, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. Who keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner, meaning those, no Gentile or no non-Israelite, you know, no one who is, who is from Israel. Though, let, no one, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, who's committed the heart to God, say that surely the Lord will exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain and say I'm only a dry tree, meaning I don't have any children. I, I don't have a future. I don't have any offspring. Let, let them not worry about that. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath. Who choose, what, uh, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my commandment, to them I will give them the temple with its walls memorial and a name that is even better than son or daughter. Listen, your inheritance is not in your children. Your inheritance, he's saying, is that I'm going to give you a name, an everlasting name, that will endure forever. 
and the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord and minister to him to love the lame of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring in to, I will bring to my mountain, my holy mountain, and give them a joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called the house of prayer for the nations. Why is this important for us? What does this actually saying? Listen, we have to understand that up to this moment and even including this moment, if you wanted to encounter the presence of God, you had to go to the temple. Like that was where God's presence resided. But in order to go to the temple, you had to, clean, you couldn't, you had to be clean. You had to be ceremonial clean. You could not go with, un, with unforgiveness. You couldn't go with sin in your life. You had to go through a process of sacrifice in order to be presented as clean. There was a process. And so if you weren't able to sacrifice, if you were being robbed of the opportunity to buy a sacrifice because they were extorting you, then what they were saying is you are not able to go into the presence of God. They were robbing people from God's presence. They were being banished from God. The system was turning, the system was turning into an us versus you sort of scene scenario where the Jewish elites and G, and with the Jew, for the Jewish elites and Jesus just wasn't having it. Like Jesus sees this system is broken. You are creating an us versus you mentality. You, you, are, you are putting barriers into my presence that I never put there. And it's making him righteously angry. And ultimately, God wants everyone and invites everybody, and God is for everybody who earnestly seek him. So Jesus demonstrates this passion for justice. The second thing we see in this story is that Jesus actually demonstrates a passion for purity. He develops a passion for purity. And this is new insight for me. Honestly, I've heard this story. I've read this story. And a lot of times we focus on the money changers. We always focus on the sellers. But I, I, I saw with fresh eyes this week that God is actually talking to the buyers. And this is maybe where it applies maybe more to you and I here today. See, Jesus was equally and righteously angry at, angry at those who were buying. He wouldn't even allow them to bring their merchandise through the temple courts. Why? Well, he called that this place a den of robbers. And he quoted the den of robbers. Now he's quoting again. He's taking a reference from something he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. He spoke this idea, and they were basically treating temple and sacrifices as a sort of this get-out-of-jail-free card. Many of us played Monopoly. We know what that card's like. We know the value of that card. But people were treating sacrifices like this get-out-of-jail-free card. Let me explain. Let's read the prophet Jeremiah first, Jeremiah 7. It says, you will steal, you will murder, you'll commit adultery. You'll swear falsely and make offerings to Baal, so a false god. And you'll either go after other gods that you don't even know. <laughs> You're either serving gods you don't even know. And then what do you do? Then you, you come and you stand before me, this is God speaking, in this house, the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Meaning you've come into the presence of God, you've received grace, you've received mercy, you've received forgiveness only to go back out and doing the same abominations. So you come into the presence of God, you, fight, you receive forgiveness, and you go back out and you do exactly what you did before. Has this house, which has been called by my name, then he says, have turned into become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, he says, I have myself, this is, I have seen it, I have seen what you are doing, declares the Lord. See, in Jeremiah's day, this is like 600 years kind of prior to this Passion Week moment. When people miss, 
when people sinned, when people fell short, they would sort of, they would shout this, they would shout this idea of the temple of the Lord. And it was sort of this phrase that they treated like a talisman, like, like a good luck charm or an, or an omen. It was a safety net for them. Like, oh, I sinned, but for the temple of the Lord, like this idea that God is gonna, God's going to save me, God will restore me, God will sanctify me anyway. And Jeremiah and Jesus compared the Israelites to raiders who rob, who kill, who, who follow idols, and then retreat to the temple of the Lord as some sort of safety net or, or, safety, or a place of safety or a safety cave or a hideout. They would sin, listen to me, they would sin with full intention, knowing exactly what they're doing, believing that they could simply just go back to the temple, offer their sacrifice, pay the cost, and all will be forgiven. And while they were right in part, their heart attitude, their mindset was so far from the heart of the process, from the heart of the system. And Jesus was addressing this issue head on. You see, what we see in this moment is that Jesus exposes the religious establishment and the religious attitudes that had separated people from God. Like he, he's coming into the situation, he's looking at it with full eyes. Listen, if the devil's main objective, if his main mission is to divide and conquer, is to divide us from God and divide us from one another, then Jesus' main objective, his main mission is to reunite his creation, his people, you and I, with him Self. And here's what Jesus is bringing awareness to in this moment. Jesus is bringing awareness that the sacrificial, the sacrificial system that was established hundreds of years before, thousands of years before, through the, through the law of Moses, if you read the first five books of the, New Testament, of the Old Testament, you hear about the sacrificial system of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the law in which we can live accordingly to God's word, that was established for people who are far from God, who are building a nation. Listen, that system that was established was no longer working. People were taking advantage of it. People were abusing it. It was broken. And rather than Jesus coming down and trying to fix it, Jesus is going to demolish it. Like he says, this is beyond fixing. We're going to start again. And rather like the day of Noah where he wiped away all of humanity, he put himself on the cross and made himself the ultimate sacrifice to fix the system that not even the powers of hell could stop. And this is what's happening in this moment. This revelation, this awareness is drawing attention to a system that was once so beautiful in its beginning, that brought people to the presence of God. It was messy, I'm sure. It was smelly, I'm sure. It was complicated at times because humanity, we've, we've, we've messed things up so bad. But Jesus is coming in and saying, I can't, this is I can't fix this. The only way to fix this is to, to destroy it and start again. And as you can imagine, this, this, this scene, it caused a scene. It ruffled some feathers. And in no doubt, it stirred hearts. But what it also did is it, drew, it further drew the anger out of the religious leaders and those who had decided to have Jesus killed. Because now, not only is he talking about the system, he's actually talking about their livelihood, their affluence, their influence in the community. He's attacking everything. So there's two thoughts I want to share with you real quick before we go home today. Hopefully this is you're learning and you're hearing from my heart and what God's heart for you is in this season. The first one I want you to understand is how we can apply this to our life is that Jesus makes a way back to God. I want you to know that Jesus makes a way back to God. This is his primary mission. John, I mean, John 14 tells us that Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
Listen, you want to know God, you want to see the Father, you want to know, then you need to go through him. Jesus' death and resurrection was the ultimate and the final sacrifice needed for all of humanity to make a way back to God. This was it. This was the final authority. This was the final, the final sacrifice needed. So when we first come to Jesus, when he comes into our hearts, when he comes into our lives, what is he doing? He is cleansing the temple of our hearts. He is cleansing the temple of our, of our lives. He is turning over tables of our old life. This is a beautiful, it's redemptive, but can we be honest? It's often a messy process, isn't it? It's often uncomfortable. It's often awkward. At times it can be painful. As these, these, these tables have sort of situated themselves as, as furniture pieces in our lives. But there's three things that Jesus does when he comes in. The first thing he does is he drives out the thief. He drives out the thief that, steal, that wants to see, steal, kill, and destroy our lives. He, he opens up the blinds. Come on, he lets the light in. He clears out the cobwebs of our hearts. He allows us to see things in our life that we have overlooked or not seen because of the darkness in our hearts. I love this, this beautiful thing. When Jesus comes to your life, you don't need somebody else coming into your life to tell you all the things you've done wrong. When the light shines, you get to see with your own eyes all the things that you need to clean up. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus. I don't have to tell you that. When you, when you, when you get awareness to God, when he comes in, he pushes the thief out, and he opens up the blinds, and he lets the light in, you get to see with your own eyes, and you get to make decisions on yourself how far you want to go with Jesus. John 10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy but what does Jesus do? He's come that you may have life and have it to the full. Another translation says you may have it overflowing. Listen, you may have it right to the brim. You're not just, you're not just it's not just sort of getting by. But it's, it's not, and, and, and a lot of times we can interpret this as an easy life. That's not what this is saying. It means you get to have the life of full. It means you have a hope of heaven. You know what the future holds for you. Jesus wants to bring your life back to life. He wants, to, he wants to bring your life back to life. Second thing he wants to do is he wants to take up residence among us. We see this. We see this in John 1, 14. He says, so the word of God, the son, the little word, meaning that God the son became human and made his home among us. So we are, full, we are full of unfailing love and forgiveness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the father's one and only son. Here is the good news is that God wants to know you and he wants to be known by you. He, he wants to abide with you. He wants you, to have a, he wants you to build a relationship with him personally, no longer through the sacrificial process or the human you know, hierarchies of high priests and pastors, but you can actually go to God the Father personally. Look, this is a revolutionary thought. For all the way prior to Jesus, the only way to get to hear from God is through the high priest's personal experience of God or through the prophet's interpretation of God. But now God is saying, you can come to me all. You can come directly to me. You can come into my presence. I am now your high priest. I am the one who goes to the Father on your behalf. You can come and know me. And this is the invitation that he wants to reside among us. So many of us, we settle for this Old Testament model of relationship with God where we only know about God or hear about God through the pastor's personal experience of God. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you're selling yourself short for the relationship you can have with God every day. Man, the Bible tells us when, the, when Jesus died on the cross, it says the veil of the temple, this temple that we're talking about, was torn in two, meaning there was no separation between the presence of God and the ordinary people. It was open for everybody. You can go to the presence of God anytime, any day. You don't have to come to this place. 
There's nothing special about this building. This isn't the temple of God. You are the temple of God. He resides in you, and you can pray, and you can engage, and you can ask, and you can open his word, and his spirit will speak to you. He wants to reside in you. We're invited into this personal relationship with God through Jesus because of Jesus. Thirdly, he wants to make his dwelling within you. Romans 8, 10 says, and Christ lives within you, even so your body will die because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because you have been made right with Christ. He wants to reside in your heart and be the Lord of your life. Your life now is the temple of God. You are the temple of God. So if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today you can be, you, today can be the day that he drives out the darkness, that he opens up the blinds, that he cleaves away the cobwebs, and he brings hope, and he brings peace, and he brings joy into you, the temple of your soul. And it starts with believing in him and choosing to follow in his words and his ways. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone, someone say everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He is, this is not a restrictor of persons, a respecter of persons. This is for everyone. So this is the great rescue mission, the great love story, the grand gesture that brought God down to earth to live, to die, to conquer death once and for all, and to make a way back to God, a way that we could not create or make on our own. And so while the process of justification, which is a big spiritual word for being made new, to being just as we had never sinned, being made righteous in a moment because of Jesus' work on the cross, that because of that, that's a beautiful thing that happens in a moment. But then the second thing we see in these final verses or these final days of Jesus' ministry is the process of being sanctified. It's being made new day by day, the continual process of being transformed from the inside out. And how many people know, I mean, we're going to be doing that till the day Jesus comes. But like none of us are perfect. I don't know about your faith, but sometimes my faith looks like one step forward, two steps backwards. Or two steps forward and one step backwards. Sometimes I'm just not who I want to be, or not, I didn't respond the way I wanted to respond. And that doesn't make me beat up. It just makes me go back to the presence of God. God, I need you to help me in that area. Clean up the cobweb of that life, or turn over the table of that thing that's risen up as furniture in a dwelling place in my heart. We go back to God and allow him to continue. This is the beautiful thing. Not only does he make a way to God once, but Jesus continues to make a way back to God. This is, the beautiful, this is the beautiful message of the gospel story. Listen, this wasn't the first time that Jesus cleared the temple. I find it interesting. You know, sometimes we forget. We think it's all the same story. But in John 2, verse 13, 25, we're, we're told that, that toward the beginning of his ministry, so he had just turned water into wine. Many of us know that story. We invite Jesus to our parties. You know, turn water into wine. It's all good. Come on over, Jesus. Do your thing. You know, too much. You guys weren't ready for that one? Okay. <laughs> so he just had this moment, right? He turned the water into wine. And then what happens is he left there and then he went to the temple. And he turned over the tables in the temple. He turned over the tables. And he brought things right. Jesus bookended his public ministry with the same action by publicly removing the barriers that separated people from God. And this was God, this was his mission, right? The enemy of our soul wants to divide us, and God wants to set, God, He wants to unite us. He began with clearing the temple, and He ended it with clearing the temple. This is the greatest news. This is the good news. It's not simply about what Jesus did once, but what He continually and actively does every day through us when we allow Him. 
right, when we give him permission. And just as Jesus returned to the temple and turned over the tables over again, every once in a while, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we need our hearts to be turned over. We need to invite him into our lives again, sometimes even daily, probably most of us even daily, to turn over the tables of our lives. The tables like idolatry and unforgiveness and secret sin and bitterness and anger and resentment and pride. And there's so many more things, the things that just set themselves up in our hearts and take residence where only the presence of God should remain. We need his help to drive out these things that, whether intentionally or unintentionally, have set residence in our hearts that are not of him. And so as we examine this passion moment, I believe there are two things we need to examine, two tables of our hearts that we need to examine in relation to this story. One, we need to examine the, t- the tables of injustice and the tables of impurity. The tables of injustice and the tables of impurity. And I believe that when Jesus, that he wants to come into our heart, he wants to continually dismantle the systems or the attitude of adjustment that hurt those he loves. Listen, all of us, all of us are with sin. None of us are without sin. We all have systems. We even have prejudices that we built up that create an us versus you mentality, that create an in and out mentality. We say, well, if you, if you want to experience Jesus or know Jesus, you have to do a list of these things, and we create these systems, and they're not all bad, but sometimes they can create this in versus us, you versus us mentality. Do we make it hard for people to find, to respond, to grow in relationship with Jesus? Do we make it, do we make people do more? Come on. Do we make people do more than Jesus expects of them? To receive their grace and receive his grace. The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. We we present the gospel of Jesus, the same Jesus that many of us in this room have received, the gospel of grace. That is everything besides me, you know, but by the grace of God in my life. Does he love me? It has nothing to do with what I did or what I have done or continue to do, but all about him. James 1.27 says, Religion that God finds, God our Father accepts, is pure and is faultless, is this, is, is to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep one's, keep one from, here it is, this being polluted. I was looking at this this morning, this idea of being polluted. This, it's, you know, pollution doesn't just happen one time. It doesn't, it's not just one bottle or, or one, you know, one exertion of emissions that creates pollution. It's the repeating of a simple thing. It looks so simple. It looks so innocent. It looks like it's not a big issue. But if you keep doing that over and over and over again, and you do that, and I do that, and we create this pollution, the smog that we cannot see through. So sometimes I would say, hey, God, what is those, what's those simple things in my life that I'm polluting? that over time are going to create a distance between myself and you and or distance between others and you. Our systems, our attitudes, our approaches, our willingness needs to make it easy for people to reconnect with God the same way that you and I connect with God. Lastly, he wants to disrupt, disrupt the rhythms or the ruts of impurity that distort our faith into religion. This is the thing that I think all of us need to sit in, that there is this, there is a true, the, that this distortion of true repentance or true surrender, this, this casual spirit that belittles Jesus' sacrifice and takes advantage of God's grace, this attitude that threatens Jesus' sacrifice as common and ordinary without regard or reverence. I'm not throwing shade, but sometimes we sit and we're like, well, I'll just say a prayer. 
I'll just say a prayer. I'll do penance. I'll just give a little bit more this Sunday. It'll be okay. And we just treat it as, as ordinary. We treat it as sacrifice, as common, as, as mundane. We just try it as this omen, as this, 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 this charm that gets out of jail free. And that's not what we're called to do. That's what Paul says in response to this in church in Rome. He says, because of grace, shall we continue to sin then, he says? Are we continuing to sin because grace may abound? Like, is that, is that the reason? Because we know we have this safety net called grace that is so much bigger than any of us can fully understand or fathom. Does that just give us free license to do whatever we want? He says, no. No, by no means. How can someone who has died through their sin still live in it? I mean, if you've turned your back on sin and you've accepted Jesus, then stop going back to the old way. Does that not mean you're not going to slip along the way? Sure, you're going to slip. But at least you're slipping in your tread towards Jesus. You're not slipping because you're turning away from him. That's what we got to focus on. We're new creations. The old has died. The new has come. We no longer live in darkness, but we're called children of light. This should impact the way we live. How we live should be in response to how Jesus died. Right? How we live our life in pursuit of holiness and the presence of God and pursuing purity and justice for all. If you're not, not much of a gardener, one of the things I, I, I loathe about gardening is the constant need to pick weeds. They just keep showing up. No matter how hard you try, they keep showing up. They keep choking out the life of your garden. And how many know that's just a constant, that's just the joy, the joy of gardening. But that's the life we're committed to, too. How many of us know the weeds of our life just keep popping up no matter how hard? Anyway, I picked that one, but that's going to keep coming. It's just going to keep coming. This is, it's the war of the sinful nature and the spiritual nature. And you just got to keep picking those weeds up before the root gets too deep, before it starts choking up the life of the Spirit in you. Just attitude of allowing God to search your heart, to turn over the tables. Here's the thing you need to know is that Jesus' love for you never grows dry. He is continually passionate for you. He never needs rekindling. He is zealous for you. He fights for you. He's yearning for you. He's charging after you. And he's waiting for you to look towards him. He demonstrates his passion of justice and purity for you and me. And he never stops. He never gives up. You're never too far away. He can never love you less or more than he already does. You are the reason why he came. You are his greatest mission. And he wants to reconnect you back to the heart of God. And this is the beginning of the Passion Week. This is what he's setting himself up for. And I know it can be a messy process, even painful at times, especially if you're holding on to the tables. You know, let go of the tables. Let him turn them over. But if you give him permission, he will come in. He will open the light, the blinds. He'll let the light in and reveal himself to you. Let's just bow our heads in prayer this morning. Two prayers I have for us today. One, that we would pray this idea that's from Psalms 139, that God would search me, he would know our heart, he would test me and know my anxious thoughts and he would see if there's any offensive or wicked way in me and he would lead me into the way of everlasting. God, we pray that you would search our heart today. God, see if there's any wickedness in us, see if there's anything in us that's, that's separating us from you or separating others from you. God, that's our prayer. Turn over the tables of our life, God. We give you permission to clean house. The second prayer is from Philippians 1.6. Lord, help us trust you that you began a good work in us so you'll carry it out to completion. You're going to continue to fix us. You're going to continue to remind us and remold us and transform us into the likeness of your son until the day that he comes back. 
So God, we give you the areas of our life that we need to trust you. Help us trust you more through the process of sanctification in my life as you continue to mold us and make us into the person that best reflects your great love. With every eye head bowed and every eyes closed, before we close in prayer, I want to give you the opportunity to make your way back to God, maybe even for, for the very first time. Maybe you're in this room and you've never come back to God. Maybe God just seems like this distant entity, this distant deity, this unknown figure, and I'm here to tell you that God loves you. This whole Easter story is about God's great love for you. Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you believe, you, and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe today you recognize your need for God, and you feel the pulling of your heart that you can't explain, and I believe that God is speaking to you and knocking at the door of your heart. The question is, will you let him in? this place right now across this room if that's you I just want you to I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to just do a, a bold faith I'm gonna ask you to lift up your hand and show yourself and just say God I, that's me I need you to pray for me I, I want to accept Jesus I'm gonna count to three and I want you to lift up your hand boldly if that's you across this place one two three go ahead I see hands across this room all across this room thank you so much you can put your hands down all across this room people's hearts are going back to God if you're through, I just want you to take one more step with me, and we're going to pray a prayer. And there's nothing powerful or profound about this prayer, but it's simply an acknowledgement of our need for Jesus, the starting point of living a life for him. And I'm going to pray this prayer. We're all going to pray it with you this morning. We're going to pray, Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me just the way I am and love me too much to leave me the way I am. I believe you came into my brokenness and you died for my sins and you rose again so that I could be made new. As much as I know now, I want to follow you. So please come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Let the light shine in. Make me a new person from the inside out. I admit that I'm a sinner in need of your saving grace. And so today I receive your forgiveness and salvation through faith and commit to following you wholeheartedly. Amen. Amen. Come on.